904. Somewhere beneath the four-coned mountain, the sluggish and baleful gods of Thogwa, who had come down from Saturn in years immediately following the Earth's creation, who was fabled to reside, and during the rife of worship at his black altars, the devotees were always careful to orient themselves towards Vormith of Dreth. Other and more doubtful beings than Sathagwa slept below the extinct volcanoes or ranged and ravaged throughout the hidden underworld. But these beings, few men other than the more adept or abandoned wizards, professed to know anything at all. This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Sarah Fee wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We use Podbean and Apple Podcasts, but some other folks use Stitcher as well. Check out our new website at, at www.pgttcm.com. Check out our new PGTTCM merch over at pgttcm.threadless.com. We have two new shirts this week. Check out our Rat Fink-inspired Sathagwa shirt and our new Join a Cult shirt. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PGTTCM and Facebook and YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Written and edited by Daniel Spitzer. Audio by Sarah Fee and Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you listen to or rate podcasts. Support the show by hitting the patron button at pgttcm.podbean.com or by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm. Recorded at Badger's Drift Studios in glorious North Portland, Oregon. Want to eat charcuterie, drink beer, and be on a podcast? Go to pgttcm.com and click Welcome to Portland to find out more. Accepting groups as large as four currently. Learn the basics of brewing, charcuterie, podcasting, and more. Want to advertise with Black Clock? pgttcm.com slash contact to find out more. Episode 904. The Hyperborean Cycle. Season 9. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. The Hyperborean Cycle is a series of short stories by Clark Ashton Smith that take place in a fictional prehistoric setting of Hyperborea. Smith's Cycle takes cues from his friends H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and their works. Lovecraft wrote to Smith in a letter dated December 3rd, 1927. I must not delay in expressing my nigh delirious delight in the tale of Satampa Zero's Smith's short story. What an atmosphere! I can see and smell the jungle around Immemorial Camorium, which I am sure must lie buried today in glacial ice near Olaho in the land of Lomar. Soon afterward, Lovecraft included Smith's Sathagwa, which originally appeared in the tale of Stamposeros, in the story of The Mound, ghost written for Zelia Reed, Zelia Bishop, in December 1929. Lovecraft also mentioned Sathagwa in The Whisper in Darkness, which he began on February 24, 1930. Because Smith in turn borrowed numerous Lovecraftian elements, 
the cycle itself may be regarded as a branch of the Cthulhu mythos. In a letter to August Durleth dated July 26, 1944, Smith wrote, In common with other weird tales writers, I have made a few passing references, often under slightly altered names such as Eog Satat for Yog Sothoth or Klut Hut for Cthulhu, to some of the Lovecraftian deities. My Hyperborean tales it seems to me, with their primordial, pre-human, and sometimes pre-mundane background and figures, are the closest to the Cthulhu mythos. But most of them are written in the vein of grotesque humor that uh, differentiates them vastly. However, such as the tale of the coming of the white worm might be regarded as a direct contribution to the mythos. The Hyperborean cycle mixes cosmic horror with an Iron Age setting. Adding to the peril is the rapidly approaching Ice Age, which threatens to wipe out all life on the Hyperborean continent. A host of other deities play immortal roles in the cycle. Foremost is the toad god Sathagwa, who dwells in Mount Vormithadrath. Hyperborean. Hyperborea is a legendary continent in the Arctic. Before it was overwhelmed by the advancing ice sheets in the Pleistocene Age, Hyperborea was a warm and fertile paradise, with lush jungles inhabited by the last remnants of the dinosaurs. A race of yeti-like bipeds known as the Vormi once populated Hyperborea, but were wiped out by the pre-human settlers who migrated here from the south. These pre-humans built the first capital of Hyperborea, Hyperborea at Camorium. Later they moved to Azuladrom, where prophecies foretold of Camorium's doom. Great Old Ones. So many Great Old Ones running around during this period, many of them hanging out in the same area. He described a sort of pool with a margin of mud that was marbled with obscene offal, and in the pool a grayish horrid mass that nearly choked it from rim to rim. Here, it seemed, was the ultimate source of all miscreation and abomination, for the gray mass wobbled and quivered and swelled perpetually, and from it in manifold fission were spawned the end anatomies that crept away on every single side through the grotto. There were things like bodiless legs or arms that f that flailed in the slime or heads that rolled or floundering bellies with fishes fins and all manner of things malformed and monstrous that grew in size as they departed from the neighborhood of Aboth. And those that swam not swiftly ashore when they fell into the pool from Aboth were devoured by mouths that gaped in the in the parent bulk. Clark Ashton Smith, The Seven Geezes. Aboth, the source of uncleanness, resides in the cavern of Yaqua beneath Mount Vormithadreth. It is a horrid, dark gray protean mass. As it is said to be the ultimate source of all miscreation and abomination, obscene monsters constantly form in Aboth's gray mass and crawl away from their parent. No two of Aboth's children are alike. In general, they are complex life forms, but the majority of them are simple-minded, acting on impulse. Their forms can be anything from amorphous blobs and singular body parts to queer humanoids and monstrous mutants. Aboth's tentacles and limbs grab many of them, pulling them back and devouring them. 
Most of those that escape simply wander off. Only a few of them tend to their sire's needs. Aboth has twisted and a cynical mind and can communicate telepathically with others near him. Aboth is also mentioned in Colin Wilson's The Mind Parasites. In the short story, The Seven Guises, 1934, Atlach Nacha is the reluctant recipient of a human sacrifice given to it by the toad god Sathagwa. Atlach Nacha resembles a huge spider with an almost human face. It dwells within a huge cavern beneath a Mount Vermithadrath, a mountain in the now vanished kingdom of Hyperborea in the Arctic. There it spins a gigantic web, bridging a massive chasm between the dreamlands and the waking world. Some believe that when the web is complete, the end of the world will come because it will create a permanent junction with the dreamlands, allowing monsters to move freely into the waking world. Atlach Nacha probably came to Earth from the planet Sinash, or Saturn as we know it today, with Sathagwa. Because of its appearance, Atlatnacha is often referred to as the spider goddess, or god. It is believed to be the regent of all spiders. Furthermore, the giant bloated purple spiders of Leng are thought to be its children and servitors. Relim Shaikorth. Relim Shaikorth appears as a huge whitish worm with a gaping maw and eyes made of dripping globules of blood. One of Rilm Shaikorth's avatars is known as the White Worm and is part of the Smith's Hyperborean cycle. The White Worm travels on an iceberg called Achilleth, which can guide across the ocean. In its colossal ice citadel, the White Worm prowls the seas, blasting the ships and inhabited land masses with extreme cold. Victims of the White Worm are frozen solid in their bodies appearing eerily white and remain preternaturally cold. They will not melt nor warm even when exposed to fire. The Coming of the White Worm, 1941. Also, of course, living in underneath Mount Volmeath Adreth is Sathagwa. Sathagwa gets his own episodes all the time. We're not going to go over Sathagwa. <laughs> we talk about Sathagwa constantly. Yeah, we even get a shirt of him. Yep, yep, and and uh, also at Latin at there, in the gray beginning of Earth, the formless mass that was Ubo Sathla reposed amid the slime and the vapors. Headless, without organs or members, it sloughed from its oozy sides in a slow, ceaseless wave, the amoebic forms that were the archetypes of earthly life. Horrible it was. If there had been aught to apprehend the horror and loathsome, if there had been any to feel loathing about it prone or tilted in the mire there lay the mighty tablets of star quarried stone that were writ with the inconceivable wisdom of the pre-mundane gods clark ashton smith ubo sathla ubo sathla the unbegotten source the demiurge is described as a huge protoplasmic mass resting in a grotto deep beneath the frozen earth the being is of a monstrous fecundity, spontaneously generating primordial single-cell organisms that pour unceasingly from its shapeless form. It guards a set of stone tablets believed to contain the knowledge of the Elder Gods, 
Ubosatla is said to have spawned the prototypes of all forms of life on Earth, though whatever its pseudopods touch is forever devoid of life. Ubosatla is destined to someday reabsorb all living things on Earth. Ubosatla possibly dwells in the gray litten Yakwa. The being may also dwell in Mount Vormithadreth and may have spawned another of its residents, the being Aboth, whose form and nature is very similar. This, sim this similarity has led some writers to speculate that Ubosatla and Aboth are the same entity viewed at different epochs under different names. The tablets that Ubosathla guards have been offsought by sorcerers, though no sorcerer has yet succeeded in acquiring them. Yaounde. Yaounde the elk goddess is the name of the deity worshipped in the waning days of Hyperborea. Yaounde's priests also banned Sathagwa's cult, and her inquisitors punished any heretics. As the Hyperborean civilization drew close, Yaounde's priests fell out of favor, and the people returned to worship of Sathagwa. According to the parchments of Phnom, Yaounde is the wife of Narlethotep, messenger of the Outer Gods. Camorium. Camorium was the first seat of power in Hyperborea. Established by the pre-human migrants from the south, it in, in its heyday, Camorium was a grand city built of marble and granite and marked by a skyline of altitudinous spires. Legend has it that the populace fled Camorium when the white sibyl of Polarium foretold of its destruction. However, Athamas, headman of the Camorium, disputes the claim and attributes the abandonment to the increasingly loathsome depredations of the horrid outlaw, Nigatham Zaram. According to Smith's The Tale of Sampra Zeros, Uzeldorium became the capital of Hyperborea after the populace left Camorium. The city lies a day's journey from the former capital. It was the last population center in Hyperborea before glaciers overwhelmed the continent. In H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, the city of the Elder Things is called a Paleogean megapolis compared with which the fabled Camorium and Alzodorium are recent things of today, not even of yesterday. The Glophian Mountain. The Iglophian Mountains mentioned in Smith's The Seven Geases are a terrifying rage of ebon peaks, said to be glassy-walled and believed to be honeycombed with hidden tunnels. The Iglophian Mountains cross the middle of the Hyperborean continent, with one range stretching to the south and another to the east. Muthalan. Muthalan was a province in the northern Hyboria, famous for its sorcerers, and it was where the wizard Ivan dwelled, as well as many other notable wizards of Hyboria, such as Zon Mezamalach. Mount Vormithadreth. Mount Vormithadreth is a four-coned extinct volcano and is the tallest peak in the Eglothian Mountains. It is the dwelling place of various horrors, including the toad god Sathagwa and the spider god Atlatnacha. Yikwa. 
The gray litten caverns of Yaqua is the dwelling place of Aboth, the source of, source of uncleanliness. It is indirectly connected with the cavern, cavern of archetypes. Atlatnacha originated here. Yaqua might be the true home of the enigmatic Ubo Sathla. Cavern of the Archetypes. The Cavern of the Archetypes is a vast cavern inhabited by the spectral archetypes of all life on this earth. Nag and Yeb reside here. Polarian. Polarian is a region of northern Hyperborea separated from the rest of the continent by an unnamed mountain range. It used to be a fertile place but was later overtaken by glaciers. The White Sibyl is said to originate from here. Who lived there? The Vormiar, the three-toed, umber-colored, fur-covered humanoids that once had a thriving civilization in Hyperborea. They dwelled underground and worships the Thogwa. After most were wiped out by pre-human settlers, the, the most savage of the Vormi became restricted to the caves at the upper slopes of the Iglophian Mountains. Before Hyperborea's fall, the remaining Vormi were hunted for sport. The Nyofkefs. The Nyofkefs are humanoid cannibals who were once residents of Hyperborea before being driven to Lomar by the Vormese. They were driven into exile into the frigid wastes of Pola Polarian, where they were later invaded by the people of Zna Zabna. They are described as being covered in coarse matted hair with large protruding ears and proboscian noses. They worshipped the great old one, Rantagoth and Thagwa. Athamaus. Who appears in Smith's The Testament of Athamaus, was a headsman or executioner of Camorium before its downfall. He was also the last to leave the city when the population fled to Usuldurium. Afterwards, he recorded a chilling testament of Camorium's final days. Thamaus was descended from a long line of headsmen. A consummate professional, Athamaus, always took great pride in his skill and never skirted his official duty. His career suffered in Camorium when he faced the task of executing outlaw Hagathen Zahum, but he later resumed it in Azul Darum, where he served eleven lusters. Ebon, a character in Smith's The Door to Saturn, was a sorcerer and priest of Zeth. Sathagwa. He is renowned as the writer of the Book of Ebon, a tome that, among other things, chronicles Ebon's life and includes his magical formulae and rites of Zathagwa. It is introduced in Smith's tale, Uban Salah, Ubo Safla. Ebon lived in a five-story, five-sided tower made of black gneiss that stood beside the, the Sea of Muthalon. Ebon disappeared shortly after. Yande's premier inquisitor, Morgi, came to his black tower with a writ for his arrest. When the Inquisition came knocking, Ebon fled to Shiranosh, the planet Saturn, Though a magic panel gave, through a magic panel given to him by Sathagwa, Eben was never seen again on Earth after that. When Morgi vanished close to the on the heels of Eben, many believed that he was in league with the sorcerer all along, and so is largely responsible for the decline in the worship of Yonde. Nagatham Zaram was a notorious outlaw of Hyperborea. He was the child of Safaklip and. A Vormi, 
he repopulated Hyperborea after humans deserted the cities of Ulzadarum and Camorium. Athamaus tried to execute him by beheading, but because of his preternatural heritage, such attempts proved unsuccessful and only served to aggravate him. As a descendant of Zakaluth, Nathanzaum reproduced by fission and thus created a Azathothian strain amongst the Hyperborean Vormi. Zotampra Zeros, who appears in Smith's The Tale of Zotampra Zeros and its prequel, The Theft of the 39 Girdles, was the master thief of Azeldurum. His exploits are legendary. He lost his right hand during a failed venture to loot the deserted city of Camorium, though his companion, Tivro Ombilos, suffered a worse fate. A strange woman reportedly coming from the realms of ice creeping upon Hyperborea. She is presented in both the tales of Satampra Zeros and the White Sibyl. In the former, she is portrayed as prophesizing the doom of Camorium. In the later, a character besotted with her pursues her into the Ice Realm, where he is, in the end, so blinded by her vision that when he is found by a common girl, he takes his rescuer for the Sibyl, weds her, and lives out his days in a joyous illusion, bearing the mark of the Sibyl's kiss on his face. Hey. We made it. We made it to the end. We made it. And we still have some time for banter. Woo! Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, what's been going on with you for the last month? Well, we just got back from Mexico City. Mexico City. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah everyone saw the photos of Mexico City. If you're uh, not, go to Instagram. Go to uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Can I just say? Black Clock Audio Tales. Mexico City is so beautiful. Oh yeah, I love Mexico City. It was so beautiful and you know, it's like especially when you're in the historic district, it really like feels like a European city in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, we stayed this... in the downtown historic. Yeah. It yeah, no. Seven no, hundred year old buildings yeah. and these like and then there's Aztec ruins as well. It's yeah. just and just like and then also the food is amazing. Food was great. Man. But don't fall for trying to go to any like foreign food just stick stick to to mexican food yeah. it's the best and say no to a hamburguesa <laughs> that's right say yes to tacos yes and soup yeah and uh you'll you'll hear ken hyde at some point in time in some interview give me uh grief for eating uh schnitzel oh yeah no no in no, no, mexico no, no. city Why would, i don't yeah what i don't know i i just i I, I thought it might be a good idea. Well, you know, I I personally, as like a cultural experience, think it is um, an interesting thing to eat foreign food in other countries. So, yeah. for instance, like I'll eat, you know, Chinese food in America, uh, in the United States, yeah. and I've eaten Chinese food in China, obviously, yeah. and also in Italy and in Mexico, uh -huh. in different parts of Mexico. Sure. Because you know, the thing is, is like Chinese food is one of those cuisines that changes where it goes. But when you're going to the one German restaurant in all of Mexico... Um, Mexico City. Well, I think also maybe all of Mexico. <laughs> be, be prepared to be disappointed. Oh, no. What I found disappointing, <laughs> what, besides their beer selection, the way that they seasoned their food and their salads, is the fact that they... Let someone who was dressed as a fucking oh, Nazi come in. Oh, no, that was awful. It that, was was, that was awful. It was like... Hey, I, I got this Indiana Jones cosplay outfit, and then I ordered no. a bunch of extra 
patches to sew on to it. It was awful. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, like, if somebody with that kind of regalia went into a German restaurant here in the United States, they would be um, probably politely, just because, you know, they don't want to interrupt other diners' uh-huh. experiences, but they would be shown the door. You yeah. know, they wouldn't be allowed to sit down. But that was not what happened there. No. But, yeah. So I don't, I don't know what the politics around that kind of stuff is in Mexico. I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know either. And part of me was like... If you know, please let us know. Yeah. A part of me was like really upset that someone was dressed as a Nazi. And the other part of me was really upset that it was completely historically inaccurate. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to be the guy who's like, hey, listen, fascist, get the fuck out of here. And also, that's not correct. That's not correct. That's not correct. You need to watch more History Channel. You need to read more about I don't Nazis think, and the occult, buddy. I don't, I don't know if that guy... I don't know. Like, I, You know, it's like if you're willing to wear that stuff, maybe you don't know enough about Nazis. Yeah. You know? And if you're willing to wear that stuff even though you know a lot about Nazis, it's probably not a good idea to talk to that guy. Yeah. You know? But... Yeah. Okay. That was a pretty yucky experience. That was a yucky experience. But everything else there in was Mexico so much City was other amazing. good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I hated that it was peppered with that one experience. But yeah, no, no. There was like the boat rides in Zochimilco. Oh, Zochimilco, yeah. Thank in you. the Zochimilco, and the um, that was an amazing thing. So like they bill it as like the Venice of Mexico, uh-huh. and of course because it's like canals, so you must be like Venice. But it actually is kind of like Venice because it, it used to be a swamp in the middle of a lake, and then the Aztecs built these like garden islands so that it would be easy to um, uh, water their crops. Yeah. You know, and and then they they grew all the food for an entire city of like two million people, which let me tell you, 800 years ago, that's a huge accomplishment to have such a big city, you know, and to be able to feed them. Yep. You know, in like a very small area, actually. No, one of my favorite things of Mexico City was going to the ruins and going to the museum. Oh yeah, and seeing that wonderful museum. It was really beautiful. Yeah. And just some amazing, amazing art museums mm-hmm. that definitely, definitely blow a lot of the museums that <laughs> just, you know, like we the, have right up around here specifically in the Pacific Northwest. Well, I mean like, I mean, let's be clear, we were going to the biggest city on our continent. Oh yeah. So yeah. I would hope that they would have a thriving art scene. Yeah, no, it was, like, it was it was like comparable yeah. to like Chicago or mm. San Francisco. Yeah, but I think it would still blow those Music. guys out. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, no, there's no. just like there's like art in the subways. There's uh-huh. art oh, yeah. in the streets. There's art no, in the restaurants. No, there's just art definitely. everywhere. Uh, and art, there's art, I mean art like, on the culturally buildings. art is everywhere yeah. in Mexico City yeah. of all different types. Yeah, and the, but then there's also all these galleries and museums as well. And I really, um, man, I loved the modern art museum we went to. Mm-hmm. That was really amazing. They have this, the the way that the museum is constructed. It has this beautiful crossing staircase right in the middle and when you go up to the landing for it it there's this um echo effect yeah it was it was amazing like you know like you know like a hyperbolic curve Uh where you can talk on one side and hear it on the other it was like that yeah yeah you mean you were there yeah (laughs) yeah yeah 
So yeah, no, we had a great time in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And let's see, uh, recently we also went to and saw a couple of movies over at the Hollywood oh, yeah. Theater for their Summer Bummer double feature. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And do you remember the titles of the, do you, do you remember the title of the first one? It Came From Nowhere? It Came From Nowhere, yeah. Yeah. And... That one was, a, oh my God, that was a really good movie. It was really good. It was, it was kind of built, billed as like a precursor for Predator because yeah. it has the sort of same kind of premise. But I mean, I haven't seen Predator, but... <laughs> We'll, I really we'll liked remedy this that. one. We'll yeah. Remedy that. Thanks. But um I really I really liked it a lot. The acting was really good. Uh -huh. The special effects were really good. It was apparently we were watching the last print in existence. Yeah. So the print quality, which was over forty years old, wasn't that great. The color was all off and like that, but it did not interfere with like the immersive experience of watching the film. Yeah. You know, like I really I really felt the like scariness and then the, the sound cues for the monsters which is really like you're like you know people would be walking around and you'd be like hearing the sound cue and you'd go oh no they're gonna get killed and it was you know it was like the whole thing was just you know it was amazing yeah yeah that yeah, was really good and then the movie after that was Satan's Cheerleaders. Satan's Cheerleaders, which was not as good. Which was not as good. <laughs> oh, but between the two, we got we got to have a Q and A with the writer director of both of um, Satan's Cheerleaders and director of the uh, director producer of, of It Came From Nowhere. Yeah, yeah, no, and you can definitely. I mean, he definitely told us that. Yeah. One was a labor of love. Yes. The other was a, a cheap cash grab a cash grab exploitation my, yeah like i need to i need to get some more you know like, credits okay, under my we, belt we, we need to we, we need to get some money you know it's like yeah. hey debbie does dallas just came out and also the exorcist what can we do right people <laughs> people are into satanism and cheerleaders right now let's yeah. combine them two and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's get some devil worshiping let's flash a little <laughs> bit of titty yeah let's make sex jokes the whole time kind of yeah debbie's a slut yeah well <laughs> Debbie is. That's a good point. I hadn't put that together. There's a cheerleader in the movie called Debbie who is always like volunteering to have sex with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Indeed. Satan's cheerleaders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least all the girls survive. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, it's kind of like a reverse horror movie. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well. Uh, up next, we have Dave's Corner of the Universe and Ken Height. Woohoo! Tink. Just remember, check out our new website at over at www.pgttcm.com. Check out our new PGTTCM merch over at pgttcm.threadless.com. Two new shirts. Check out our Rat Fink inspired Sathagwa shirt and our new Join a Cult shirt. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PGTTCM and Facebook and YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. My name is David Heath and I run a blog called Dave's Corner of the Universe. I've been invited here to discuss the great old ones and a specific great old one. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you a little story about where I used to work. A few jobs back, I had a co-worker who noted that I had no problem talking to angry customers or that I had no problem basically giving impromptu classes at work. And she said, 
David, are you afraid of anything? I quipped back that I was afraid of zombies and meteorites. That was a lie. I'm not afraid of meteorites, and I'm not afraid of zombies. And in general, I have no fear of public speaking. In fact, I really enjoy it. I, if I had a superpower, it would be two. One, I literally never get bored. And two, that give me a subject that I'm at least slightly familiar with, 30 minutes of research, and I can go in front of anybody, any amount of people, and give a presentation on it. That said, there is one aspect of public speaking that just scares me to my mark, and that is trying to pronounce the names of the entities in the Cthulhu Mythos. And today, I'm going to talk about Tsogiwa. Now, I am terrible at pronouncing some of these names, and I may have mispronounced it then, but I predict as this podcast goes on, it's going to get worse and worse. And then I'm going to start pronouncing him Tosadida, and then I'm going to call him Tunguska, and finally, I'm going to get so frustrated with saying that name that I'm just going to start calling him Mr. T. To add insult to injury, on this podcast is going to be Ken Hyde, who really is my go-to guy when it comes to how to pronounce the names of the creatures in the Cthulhu Mythos. So if you're listening to it and you say, hey, you know, Dave pronounced this one way and Ken pronounced it another way, go with Ken's pronunciation. I guarantee you, you're going to sound smarter than if you go with mine. So in the words of the classic salt and pepper song, let's talk about Tosagawa. Tosagawa was not invented by H.P. Lovecraft. It actually was created by Clark Ashton Smith. However, Lovecraft is going to get Tosagawa in print, or at least the name in print, before Smith will. Smith is going to send Lovecraft a draft of a story he's writing. And Lovecraft is going to love it, and he's going to love especially Tosagawa. And he is going to write to Smith and say, hey, I want to use this in a story that I'm ghostwriting. Uh, that story was The Mound. And The Mound is not going to be published during life, Lovecraft's lifetime. Instead, he uses it as a reference in his story, The Whisper in the Darkness, um, which uh, I discussed last month when I talked about the Mego. Now, if you didn't know how Lovecraft and Smith's relationship was, it would sound like Lovecraft was ripping Smith off. This is the farthest from the truth. Lovecraft did this as an homage to Smith. Smith and Lovecraft are never going to meet. One lives on the East Coast, one lives on the West Coast. They are going to be very prolific correspondence. They're going to write each other often. They are going to borrow, share, and inspire each other, but they never physically meet. Smith is going to start out as a poet, and he's even going to be called, you know, the Keats of the Pacific. He's going to get some degree of fame in the United States and in Europe. 
this is how he's gonna how Lovecraft is gonna come across him. Lovecraft is going to write this gushing fanboy letter to him, saying how wonderful he is, how he was a great poet, how his poetry put all of Lovecraft's poems to shame. And to be honest, there's truth to that. And that he is just going to just go gush over over Smith and his, his poetry. Ironically, what's going to happen, though, is his correspondence and his friendship with Lovecraft is basically going to seduce Smith from the poet and the poet that he was sort of destined to become into this writer of horror, of pulp fiction. And, you know, we can say, oh no, what a, you know, we lost such a great poet. But then again, we have to remember that Clark Ashton Smith was one of the greatest influences on Ray Bradbury. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact and that he could have been this magnificent poet, but I still appreciate his supernatural, his cosmic horror, and of course, you know, his, his pulp fiction. So let's talk about Tosagua. If Cthulhu is sort of almost this menacing yet powerful, majestic, mind flayer-esque creature, and Azathoth is this glory and power and creation, the center of the universe, Tosagua is sort of the ugly duckling of the great old ones. And to say that is to say something, because the great old ones aren't all that cute in the first place. The onset of plush Cthulhu's. Tosagua is basically described as a toad plus a hog plus a bat, with Lovecraft more focusing on the toad portion than Smith did. Now, Smith sort of justifies this by saying that Tosagua is a shape changer. Tosagua can look like whatever Tosagua wants to look like. And we see that to some extent in Cthulhu, that Cthulhu can basically keeps the same sort of form, but how octopus-like he looks compared to how toad-like he looks, it's up to him at any given moment. Now, I don't give a lot of credit to Lovecraft's Family Tree of the Gods. I think that was written as a joke. But he has Dosagua and Cthulhu being cousins. So if we were to think that maybe they really are sort of this family connected somehow, biologically, genetically, more even maybe spiritual family, that their true forms may resemble each other. And that when they travel to the planet Earth, they choose separate, independent terrestrial forms. Now that's a thought I had. Again, I kind of shoot myself in the foot when I say it. And the fact that I don't think Lovecraft meant you know, the family tree of the gods to be taken seriously. I think 
he wrote it as a joke. Lovecraft has Tosagua being worshipped by the underground civilization of Nakai. And he has that a more primitive, non-human species taught these, these sort of advanced subterranean humans that live in Nakai about Tosagua or Tupelo, as I may call him next. Smith has the people from Hyperborea as sort of a lost prehistoric civilization of humans uh, taught about Tosago from sort of this hairy, ape-like sort of Sasquatch race called, although these sort of origin stories may differ, they do sort of stress the idea that this was a pre-human entity that was introduced to human beings by something older, more natural, something unhuman, but older than, than the human race themselves. My introduction to, to Sagwa was in the uh, Chaosium role-playing supplement, the compact quest for Tasagua. To best of my knowledge, I believe that back in 1997, that's the first thing I ever bought off the internet. And I was like, I didn't get a lot of people back then that played, you know, the Chaosium Call of Cthulhu. So like most pre-canned adventures, I just took the parts that I liked and I used them in other things. Uh, most notably, I took from that adventure and put in the GURPS Bloodline vampire hunting adventure, and uh, I also used part of it in a uh, GURPS Black Ops adventure. But the thing that really, two things came out of that particular scenario that I still kept with me. One was the connection that Tosagua had, and by Tosagua, the rest of the mythos had with these ancient civilizations like the Hyborians, and also these primitive non-human races like the Vermis. The other is this just awesome scene where the adventurers, as I remember, are supposed to be sort of they're watching, it's kind of a passive scene, but they see a polar bear comes and basically gives, you know, reverence and, you know, obeisance to Tosagua at a shrine. And that just shows them the power that this creature has at a primal animalistic level. That it's almost, human beings, I don't want to say are too advanced, but we have things like doubt and fear and well maybe we envy maybe the you know the cult of Hastor has better robes or something and so I'm sort of tempted to leave the the cult of uh, Tosogawa or heck I just can't take a cult seriously if I can't say, pronounce the name of its deity but with this scene we see that nature 
instinctively sees the power in Tosagua and in the mythos. And even though it may not be intellectual worship as we human beings conceive of it, it's there. And to me, that is a powerful scene. So my next really experience with Tosogiwa was the Chaosium book, The Tosogiwa Cycle. And I love these collection of books by Chaosium, especially the ones dedicated to uh, individual deities. Now, I picked this one up basically because my local borders was going out of business and they had a bunch of these books that were half price. I mean, I'm sure I would have picked it up eventually, but I was much more interested in, you know, the Dunwich cycle or the, uh, the uh, Narlahotep uh, cycle than Tosagawa. But, you know, a half-price book is a half-price book. The short story that I really liked in that one was by Gary Myers, and it was called The Horror Show. And it's only 11 pages long, and it takes place in modern times, where this girl, Lisa, is basically invited to this nightclub showing where they see, you know, terrible, horrible creatures devour other human beings. And at the end, she basically turns to her date and says, you know, I almost believed it was real. You know, it was such a great show. It was a show, wasn't it? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And the man who is in on it the whole time says, yes, yes it was. To me, this captures the zeitgeist or the essence of Tusagawa, that it is this force of primitive nature that can exist secretly in our society. But mankind, humankind, they sort of resist it. They ex because it is so primal, so primitive, it makes up excuses. And it can see this terrible thing such as human sacrifice and just explain it away. At this time, I will resist any temptation to make some sort of comment about comparing that with our current state of United States politics. My name is David Heath and I appreciate you spending the last couple of minutes as we discuss the great old one known as Tusagawa, Tusugawa, Teddy Ruxpin, Texarkana, or whatever the heck his name is. Thanks again, David, and you can find Dave at Dave's Corner of the Universe, and you can find that in our show notes, or just Google Dave's Corner of the Universe. Up now? Can I? It was uh, Founders Mas Agave. It's amazing. It's like if you uh, put tequila in the transporter from the <laughs> Star Trek episode, The Enemy Within, and you teleported it, and the evil tequila was sent to a distant planet, and the good tequila came and was a beer. Huh.
Huh. That's what it tastes like. <laughs> it's amazing. Wow. It's an Imperial Goza aged in tequila barrels brewed with te- agave and lime and salt. You know, I, I, I like it anytime that uh, food or wine is described using a Star Trek analogy. So Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that was... <laughs> That was so good that I had to break out a Star Trek analogy to describe it. That's how yeah. good it was. Yeah, I, um, uh, I I had that at Maria's in Chicago, and it was excellent. So, not uh, not necessarily going to say that you're going to be as blown away by it as I was, but you appreciated Mescal just now, so I thought sure, yeah. perhaps perhaps DB would enjoy Founders Mas Agave. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's the bomb. I didn't just, uh, you know, call you up to talk about uh, alcohol, even though I, I think we could definitely do a DB, could do DB and when Ken you... talk about liquor and spirits and right. whatnot for two hours. <laughs> when, you, when you do your next series of podcasts that's nested within the first series of podcasts. <laughs> so it's People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos presents Black Clock Radio's uh, Dark Brew. <laughs> We're getting close to that. In which you are just <laughs> podcasting about beer and spirits. Very much so. And then I can come on on that show and we can talk about it. Awesome. Awesome. Right. Yeah, so um, I'm always happy to have you on the show, Ken. I've been listening to quite a bit of Ken and Robin talk about stuff as of late. Just because it's, it's fun to listen to while I do yard work. My definition of fun, and I'll fight anyone on that. And... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, it's like, you know, first it's like, well, I always like listening to Ken Height talk at uh, panels. It's always fun to hear that and listen to Ken Height talk on other podcasts. But listening to you talk about gaming from the inside of gaming, how to run a successful game, how to deal with uh, problematic gamers to, like, don't just, like, ban them, like, find out what the problem of the source is. I mean, that's more of, like, Robin's solution, not yours necessarily. Yeah. Because <laughs> Robin is Canadian. Yes, yes. But it's, it's, it's like really neat to hear like a balanced kind of uh, like, you know, if it's like if Ken's ideas don't work, Robin's ideas might work for you. But it's also kind of like how to be professional in like people who want to break into gaming and how to write well and just kind of like fun kind of explorations of alternative timelines. And I just have to say, if, if anyone hasn't been listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, I highly recommend people go out there right now and check it out. Well, thanks very much. That's very nice of you. Yeah. Um, we, we do we do what we can. Um, 350 episodes and climbing, so yeah. obviously it's it's too late for us to stop. Um, but yeah, uh, give us a listen. And uh, like us, subscribe, rate, and back <laughs> our Patreon. I've, I don't know what order you're supposed to say that in. I'm a, I'm a terrible podcaster. There, there's, there, there's a way you're supposed to say it, and I, and I just ruined it. But that's, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's nice that, that, uh, that, that you're picking up on it, and that you voluntarily go out of your way to hear more from me. That's very sweet. But that's not why you called, is it? That's not why I called. I wanted to talk about space monsters from yes. a long time ago. <laughs> All righty, best kind. Specifically, I wanted to talk about the, uh, I believe, the Hyperborean Age, if, if, if we're going to call that, uh, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the trouble with calling it the Hyperborean Age is that you slip and you call it the Hyborian Age, and then suddenly you're one musketeer over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't know, I think people call it like the Hyperborean Cycle because they want to feel fancy, or um, uh, just Hyperborea, or the Hyperborea stories if um, uh, you're just trying to sort of pile them up. 
Um, I don't know. The book was called Hyperborea. That 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 starts us, right? Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, um, whatever noun you use, Hyperborean is the thing that uh, Clark Ashton Smith, because I guess at some point someone should say his name, yeah. um, uh, brings to the table, or rather borrows from ancient Greek lore and uh, theosophy and a couple of other places, and uh, and lays it out and says. Uh, oh, this uh, Lovecraft uh, imaginary gods and monsters and wizardry stuff is kind of fun. I'm going to write them myself, but I'm going to set them in the primordial past, not in the uh, present day, not in Rhode Island. Although, of course, he wrote things like Return of the Sorcerer that are legitimately straightforward, modern-day weird tale stories in every way. Mm -hmm. But I think things that we are most comfortable talking about, or, or uh, certainly had more more of the special Clark Ashton Smithness that we love about him, come when he's making up his own stuff, whether that's Averroin or Zothique or Hyperborea, that it's not uh, for him the sort of quotidian, let's take this square block of Providence and drill down and find out who lived there and make a cool story about that, that I love so much uh, about Lovecraft. It's, it's very much the, here is a fantasy realm that it is, happens to be set on Earth in uh, primordial Greenland or in medieval France or in the far future or something. And, and that sort of uh, connection to the real uh, keeps him just grounded enough that when he's off spinning his crazy Clark Ashton Smithery, I, I think it it, it has a, a nice earthy quality to it as well. And I guess that's, you know, that shows up in sort of the nature of the, of the stories and also in the gods. Uh, and monsters, as you alluded to earlier. As as I was talking about, I I, I personally feel that uh, the Seven uh, Gius is uh, is a good example of uh, the Hyperborean age or the Hyperborean cycle. Kind of like picks and chooses a little bit here and there, and talks about Sathagwa and Alatnacha and, and and some fun things. There is what what would you recommend people uh, check out if they wanted to really get a sense of the Hyperborean cycle? I mean, one of the nice things about it is it is short stories. It's not uh, super long, uh, detailed novels that you have to drill yourself into and parse through a, an appendix. It's a bunch of really great short stories. And I agree with you very much. Seven Geases uh, sets you up as a glorious, because it's basically a, a, a shaggy dog story. And I, I just love the, the way that it sort of says, oh no, the princess is in another castle. And also she's a giant spider. Um, the, the sort of uh, way that he jerks around uh, Smith again, he takes some time to make up these crazy names. And it, sure. It feels irresponsible not to uh, not to remember. A Ralabar Vuz. The, the way that the poor uh, jerk is, is dragged around, and, uh, that's why I actually rank it as one of my favorite and I think one of the best mythos stories uh, because it shows that you can do the same themes of cosmic futility but you just do them as a joke yeah right yeah lovecraft says in many cases that Nirlathotep is doing all this stuff as a joke and he any um uh, that he chants to mold the earth in play in the poem or that the uh, the mocking laughter of Nirlathotep, etc etc but lovecraft does not and i think we can agree have a huge sense of humor in his stories he has a great sense of humor in his <laughs> in his letters yeah but his stories are very very serious and to see the same exact themes of cosmic nihilism played out as a basically a joke on uh, Ralabar Vuz. I mean, and that's thematically very interesting in addition to it being funny and creepy and weird and just transcendently imaginative. And again, I say that the, uh, the, the stories aren't novels, 
Yeah. But if anyone had as many good ideas in a row as are in Seven Chiasas, it would be a seven-volume fantasy series, and it would uh, take uh, 200 million words to get through. Yeah. And instead, Clark Ashton Smith just bangs it out there, uh, just dings a homer right over, right over the back, right over the back of the bleachers. It's an amazing story, just on I think on every level, really the the craft of it, but also the horror that I think people underestimate because it is so funny, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm really surprised no one's really ever done anything with this commercially. Yeah, it's I mean, part of it is that Smith is still I think. Uh, under copyright, he's not as uh, public domain as Lovecraft is, uh-huh. or even the part of Howard that is, because Smith, of course, lived uh, and good for him. He lived a, a good long life after st- uh, stopping writing yeah. in the 30s. So 70 years uh, past the death of the author is farther along. And whoever is the Smith estate, I think, sort of got on the ball and uh, renewed copyrights and things like that. The, the, the degree to which Smith is uh, public domain I'm pretty sure he's not. And yeah. so you can't just borrow the seven Jesuses, but then conversely, um, oops, <laughs> is there, is there going to be a, a big, uh, a, a big upside to doing a, 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 a fantasy, you know, quest of the seven Jesuses movie or, or TV show? Maybe not because, Maybe not. because it's, it's a very, uh, uh, rarefied taste. I mm-hmm. think. Sure, sure. Is. And so, you know, Given that we haven't even yet had uh, a proper uh, Cthulhu thing on in a television show, the fact that we haven't had an even more obscure thing by an even more obscure author maybe shouldn't surprise us that much. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not surprised anymore since uh, True Detective season one. <laughs> yeah. But again, that was that was Nick Pizzolatto uh, sort of at the very almost I don't want to say the last minute, but at the end of the first draft, he takes Chambers. And he puts him in, but the story is not a Chambersian story. No. The story, to, to to the extent that it's, it's sort of a Lovecraftian true crime story, sure. but or a Legati true crime story, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> given. Um, but the, uh, the the set dressing of Carcosa, while it adds an element to people like you and me, I'm not sure that Joe HBO watcher was more or less uh, startled to see Carcosa show up. Than they would have been if it had been um, uh, the Stone City yeah. that was his original draft, right? Yeah. Because it was going to be the Cypress King and the Stone City, and then he's like, "Oh, I'm just going to use Carcosa because it's cooler." <laughs> and, and good for you, Nick. That that was cooler. That was but, cooler. Uh, yeah. But but I don't know that. Uh, I mean, again, you'll note it did not start a a giant um, uh, series of uh, Robert W. Chambers TV shows being. Uh, commissioned and robert w chambers god bless him has had a tv show huh. the, the, the finder of lost loves is based on his radio show okay it was based on his novel mr keen the hmm. tracer of lost persons okay i, I missed that one somehow <laughs> yeah well no, it, it's 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 the it's the latter chambers that, that people like uh, uh, lovecraft uh turn their nose up at yeah because the... it sold and was popular and got a TV show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's fun stuff. Okay, so uh, who 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 are the major players? Who are the major uh, gods and powerful mortals? It's uh, am I remembering correctly that the uh, Book of Ebion is written around this period of time by a uh, proto-human? Am I am I am I misremembering stuff, or is that that the right stuff? 
I mean, Ivan is a sorcerer and a priest. Um, I guess we don't know if he's a proto-human or just a human from before we think humans exist. Okay. I'm reading the stories, there's the sort of furry people, uh, the Vormis, that got shoved out by the Hyperboreans. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that at any point we're ever meant to believe the Hyperboreans are anything more than sort of fantasy world humans. Okay. Um, I mean, they certainly aren't described as being, um, uh, you know, green or nine feet tall or uh, lay eggs or any of the other sort of markers that you might have with for them being non-human. Sure. I, I, as against that, yes, it's millions of years before humans uh, evolved according to your fun killer science. <laughs> but, uh, but again, that's... That's not a problem as long as, you know, you can play with time and space the way that Sathagwa does. But yeah, Ibon is sort of the big, uh, the big sort of hero wizard guy. Um, he's a priest of Sathagwa, of course, or Jothakwa, as he sure. is known in Hyperborea. And um, uh, he uh, uh, runs away to Saturn um, when uh, the people are saying, maybe we don't want to have a mythos wizard living in our city. That's a... That's a public health risk. And and then, so that's what we know about that. And then um, Ivan, I think, he's he's not like the star of a lot of the stories. Mm -mm. He's, he's The book of Ivan is mentioned. And then Lovecraft, of course, that's one of the few bits of the Clark Ashton Smithos that Lovecraft takes and sort of promotes to the big leagues and moves up into his stories. That's a that's an awful way to say it. But just the Lovecraft borrows. Smith is big league, too. Uh, yeah. Smith is, is great. He's just... Not playing the same game as Lovecraft is, really. Um, but uh, but so Lovecraft sort of, he, he takes Ibon, or wherever he takes the book of Ibon. I don't think he ever mentions Ibon qua Ibon. And then um, uh, he takes Sathagwa because he thinks Sathagwa is terrific. Mm -hmm. And of course, if He's you correct. look into it, he is correct. <laughs> but the Lovecraft does, Lovecraft's Sathagwa and Smith's Sathagwa are almost two different gods with the same name. Yeah. Uh, I think Robert uh, Price mentions this uh, and may have even discovered it, but the notion that uh, Lovecraft describes Sathagwa as black and formless yeah. and, and uh, like a, a goo. And, uh, of course, Smith describes Sathagwa as a fuzzy, lazy, fat toad bat. Yeah. Who just hangs out in the center of the world in the cavern of Yoth and you know, eats bones and gives people dumb jobs and messes with you. Because <laughs> he's just a big, fat, lazy jerk. He's sort of, you know, a magic job of the hut. Yeah. And um, and the, the, I love the notion that these are both Sathagwa. Yeah, yeah. Right? This is just two different versions of the same god, like Zeus and Jupiter, right? Mm -hmm. That some of the myths are with one and some of the myths are with others. And it's just, who are you and what are you looking at? And the notion either that Sathagwa is a formless goo that takes the shape of a toad bat in the primordial world to mess with Hyperboreans. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love the notion that Sathagwa was once a toad bat, but as he kept uh, focusing Eldritch power, he began to dissolve into a formless goo. I like that. I like all of it. I like the notion that he's multifaceted and mm -hmm. what you see depends on who you are or where you're standing. Okay. Um, that he's like Yogg-Sothoth or Neothotep, that he's a fractal god. That that actually kind of leads it up into something that I was I was thinking about, which was it's like I was thinking about the um, story about the thief who loses his hand, uh, Zephros. Oh man, I'm just totally. Zephros. Thank you, thank you. 
Thief who loses his hand, they're being chased around by this like gooey thing that runs around and all these little things and whatnot. And I'm like, was that actually Sathagwa? Was that like some sort of like Sathagwa? Did did something happen to Sathagwa? Was he corrupted in some way? And then it like makes me think more about like uh, more than a relic of the uh, like I, I don't know if it's the Thurian or the Hyborian age, but we have this Batrachian entity that uh, babies are horribly sacrificed to. I think um, in uh, Monstrous or uh, Malleus Monstrum, Chaosium implies that it's Golgoroth, but they talk about it being this like shapeless, formless, like toad t- type thing. Is like, is that Sathagwa? Is, uh, is there a bunch of uh, uh, Batrachian uh, godlike entities running around Earth in the uh, hy- Hyperborean and Hyborian age? <laughs> Right, I mean, and that's part of the fun. And one of the great things about Stampa Zeros, again, the way that Lovecraft does something is he says, oh, this is modern day at Antarctica, but a billion years ago, there were monsters. Yeah. And uh, you're like, oh, I hope none of those monsters are still alive. Oh, they are. Uh, but um, Smith, of course, can't do that with something that's already a billion years old or mil- many, many millions of years old. So what he does is Stampa Zeros is set millennia after the main hyperborean cycle sure because kamoriam has fallen into ruins mm-hmm. and so we have this notion of this of this uh, plastic goo thing in the temple of satagwa that uh chaosium again to to uh, tip our hat to them uh borrows then as the formless spawn of satagwa sure but um but the notion that is that Sathagwa? Did he just melt over all this time? Or is that his true form and without worship to keep him uh, looking like a fuzzy toad bat or without the spells of Ibon, maybe, mm-hmm. to keep him looking like a... F- he deliquesces and he turns into his awful um, uh, Shagathi uh, main form. And the, the, the way that Smith manages to get that historical dimensionality into stories that... Uh, just between you, me, and the fence post might as well be set on, you know, in Middle Earth or Narnia or anywhere else. Sure. Because they're not Greenland, really. Yeah. Although he, he plays a little bit with that, about the on, the, the ice walls and things like that mm-hmm. in some of the later stories, and talks about that. And, and of course, he borrows Lovecraft's Knafkes as as part of the, uh, the, the sort of the on-looming presence. For Smith to sort of say, oh, I need an ancient city for my story to work. Oh, I'll just use my own ancient city and move this... <laughs> That's just a lovely answer. I, yeah. I just think he's terrific at it. And again, Satampa Zeros is, is itself a great story. Oh, I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's, um, and Lovecraft thought so too. He well nigh delirious delight is his response to it in his letter to, to Smith. And he says, um, what an atmosphere. And that, of course, <laughs> is, is what Lovecraft loved about stories. And it's why he didn't mind that Smith is not setting his stuff in you know Auburn, California. Yeah, he's setting it in crazy fantasy land, but he can write so that you can smell that jungle and and um, uh, and be there with Satampa Zeros or with um, uh, Rolim Shikworth or within whoever it is that you're that you're hanging out with. Yeah, no, no, and I have to think, and I'm I'm thankful that it's not set in uh, rural uh, farming California in the <laughs> 1920s and 30s. The hellish stories of the Imperial Valley. <laughs> So we were out burning leaves again. <laughs> That's right. Although Quatrell Utels is kind of raisiny when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs>
like part of me thinks like grapes of wrath meets like uh, <laughs> the seven guesses would be kind of weird. <laughs> That's right. Tom Joe just sent on errand after errand. I'm just trying to get apples from a family. Yes, but first you must go to the center of the world where Adlak Naka crawls along the web of destiny. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know about that. The, the world missed a, a, a bet when uh, John Steinbeck and Clark Ashton Smith did not collaborate. I yeah, guess. yeah. It's our lesson here. <laughs> yeah, people are always talking about Lovecraft and Hemingway. What about Steinbeck and Smith? That that was actually uh -huh. like more more likely to have happened. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, not least because Steinbeck at least had an uh, he had a um, an appreciation of at least heroic fantasy because of course he did King Arthur. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, we are we are just a hop, skip, and a jump away from making that happen. <laughs> now there's 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 an HBO show. Well, I, I don't think HBO would do that show. I think that's more of like an I'm like not not even an AMC. It's like oh man, who 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 would do the uh, the Steinbeck uh, Clark Ashton Smith mashup? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, it's one of those sort of channels, maybe sci-fi. If I wanted to run a game set in. Uh, Hyborian age what engines would you suggest like um, I have friends out there who are like Robotech Shadowrun uh, Cthulhu tech like the crunchier the better. Oh my god. I love math and then people like me who are like uh, Let's just set the rule book over in the next room and <laughs> play <laughs> Well, I mean obviously if you're gonna set something in Hyperborea uh I mean, Call of Cthulhu just pops instantly to mind because all the monsters have been statted up and because Cthulhu comes out of RuneQuest, it has uh, an affinity for, and you can borrow from RuneQuest any more that you need to play that sort of uh, fantastic age gaming, right? So if you just took, you know, a, a chunk of RuneQuest and you married it to Call of Cthulhu, you'd basically be there for playing in the Hyperborean era. Um, I think you could also obviously play it. Um, there's a uh, gumshoe sword and sorcery game that is uh, slowly rising like uh, real, yeah, in the distance called uh, Swords of the Serpentine hmm. that I wager will also uh, provide you with an opportunity to clone it into a Hyperborean cycle game if you feel like using gumshoe and the Trail of Cthulhu versions of the monsters and whatnot, because why wouldn't you want to do that? No, that sounds um, awesome. <laughs> But uh, but there's already I think there's uh, Hyperborean games that, that are that are right there. Oh. Um, so yeah, there's a game called Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, huh. which I know nothing necessarily about except it says Hyperborea right on it, and um, uh, who doesn't love that? Uh, and I think that it is a little bit more of the crunchy universe. Uh -huh. um, uh, uh, that uh, your your second team of players like because I think it's a an old school D and D clone okay. type game. All right. So that would have uh, some of that uh, that crunchier quality if you wanted to class and level it. But again, uh, it's a fantasy world, uh, and uh, I believe that Sandy Peterson has just done a big book of Cthulhu Mythos monsters for Five E. Huh. So, uh, and he's done one for Pathfinder. So if you're a Pathfinder guy, you uh, you can go right ahead and play Hyperborean Pathfinder, I think, with uh, your Pathfinder and with uh, the Pathfinder Cthulhu Mythos book. And of course, uh, Sandy just did the same book again for 5e. Um, so if you're a 5e gal, uh, get your D&D team together, get that book and uh, jump on it. it. It's super easy. And again, 
unlike uh, Lord of the Rings or uh, Game of Thrones, there's not 8 billion pages of material you've got to memorize. <laughs> uh, there's like a, a map that uh, like Tim Kirk or somebody sketched in 1970. There's um, uh, uh, like about a dozen stories that uh, Clark Ashton Smith wrote. And sure. you're done. You're good. Yeah. Oh, right yeah, in. definitely. And then... Uh, people like me can't come on and say, ah, no, I believe Lozalda Room is to the south. Because <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> it hasn't been defined out of fun. Just knock yourself out. Put it wherever you want. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing we haven't talked about is, uh, did did Lynn Carter, and I'm mentioning this now, so if you're like, no, what are you talking about? You're wrong. I can cut it out. Uh, did Lynn Carter do a bunch of uh, Hyperborean stuff involving, like, Ibon and whatnot it's like part of me is like i think i have a book about that i just remembered <laughs> i believe what he uh, what he did was he did some sort of quote-unquote translations from the book of ibon oh okay yeah 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 it's that it's... were that, that were kind of um horse like if you sort of imagine like the book of judges in the bible yeah as a collection of fantasy stories yeah because they're all the Here's this amazing guy who stabbed Midianites, and here's another amazing guy who was super strong and he beat up Philistines. Here's a cool lady who smote the Assyrians, and and that's you know that's basically what the Book of Judges reads like. If you don't happen to believe it's the inerrant Word of God, mm -hmm. um, it reads like cool fantasy stuff. And exactly. I think that that's what Lynn Carter did with the Book of Ibon. He wrote sort of like little episodes from the Book of Ibon that were fantasy stories, but that were also um, uh, um, you know, meant to be part of mythos scripture to the extent that that means anything, right? Sure. Yeah. No. That 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 stuff is really fun for role playing games. I'll I'll definitely say that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Lynn Carter definitely gives you the sort of um, uh, pink slime that you can make your role playing game fast food tacos out of. Oh yeah, definitely. I I I, I give mad props to Lynn Carter. At providing raw materials from which something fun could be made. Yes. Um, I don't know that I've read a single Lynn Carter story that I enjoyed as a story. No. Uh, but um, certainly, if you if you want more of that um, uh, sweet Hyperborean uh, 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 heroine, uh, Lynn Carter is your methadone. Um, Stairs in the Crypt, uh, Scroll of Morlock, uh, a bunch of these sorts of things that were basically meant to be uh, sort of adventures of Ibon or adventures in the Ibon era that Ibon is writing down mm -hmm. uh, fictively. And so uh, I, I think Chaosium has a collection called the Book of Ibon that has yeah. most of them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one I think I have. The one I think I have for sure, definitely. Yeah, uh, and again, um, I would not call it mandatory by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. If someone were to come to me and say, Ken, I want you to make a Hyperborean game, I would say, do we have rights to Lynn Carter? Because, again, the raw materials for cool stuff is there. Oh, sure, totally. Uh, but I would not necessarily, like, say, if you if you, if you haven't read Lynn Carter, you, you don't get to play in Hyperborea. No, I would say, good for you, well chosen, spending your time doing other things. Here's the thing, a bad Lovecraft pastiche is still bad. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But I think it's an easier thing to do badly kind of well if that makes sense yeah yeah um it's like soccer if, if five-year-olds play soccer it's still recognizably soccer sure if five-year-olds are playing baseball it's it's nothing no one has any coordination 
So you have a similar problem, I think, with trying to do a Clark Ashton Smith pastiche because Smith was such a great stylist. Yeah. And so much of what makes Smith work is this really well-chosen uh, use of language that then builds this atmosphere of emotion that Lovecraft responded to that it's much harder to do badly. Or rather, it's much easier to do badly, but you see what I mean? It's harder to do badly well. Sure, sure, definitely. So you, you, you read the mediocre Derleth Lovecraft stuff or, or the later stuff that other people have done, of, and even the Lynn Carter Lovecraft stuff, is at least serviceable, right? There's a there, there, there's a thing and a thing and a thing, and you're, you're, and you're, you're not... You're not genuinely scared or anything, but this, the story functions the way that it's intended to do. There is rising action. Mm -hmm. But the Lynn Carter Smith stuff, because it's meant to provide this sense of atmosphere, it can't do it. It's it's like, it's like you know, cheap uh, dime store knockoff, a bad version that doesn't reach it. And I think that that's one of the things that Smith, maybe that's part of why Smith is, as we discussed earlier, less out there in the world. Mm -hmm. In addition to the, you know, the legal question, there's also the question that fake Lovecraft is at least satisfying. Yeah. Fake Smith is not satisfying. No. And it makes me now think why we have so much Robert E. Howard and Robert E. Howard clones out there. <laughs> yeah. And again, and this is not to diminish Robert E. Howard. No, no, no. Both are amazing writers. And if you read the untrammeled Robert E. Howard in the new cleansed of El Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter Dross, yeah. you, you you rediscover how great those original Conan stories were. Oh, yeah. But again, I think it's easier to write a story about a, a burly guy killing people with a sword and still get where you're going than it is to have that sort of arch uh, Smithian uh, tone and language going. That, yeah. That's just a harder act because so much of, so much more of it is in uh, emotional attitude and in uh, the poetic atmosphere. I mean, Smith, of course, began as a poet, mm -hmm. and he was a very good poet. He was, um, you know, recognized by George Sterling. It was a real poet that he would be taught in poet class if you went to poet school. And George Sterling said, Clark Ashton Smith is a great poem, a poet. He's terrific. And uh, and then there's an argument. It, 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 it turns into the bag on Lovecraft show, and it certainly shouldn't, because God knows we both love Lovecraft. Definitely. But there's an argument that the reason Lovecraft stopped, write, stopped writing as much poetry as he did in the first half of his uh, life mm -hmm. is that he sort of started corresponding with Smith and then was like, oh, I can't be sending Clark Ashton Smith my garbage poetry. Maybe <laughs> I should something else. <laughs> and so his poetic uh, output like peaks like the year before he writes to Clark Ashton Smith in like 19 and 20 and then it drops off a cliff. Not drops yeah. off a cliff, but it goes way down once he's corresponding with Clark Ashton Smith. And I think maybe... Um, maybe that's, you know, if, if Lovecraft recognized he couldn't write like Smith, maybe we should all recognize that. Yeah. What stuff. Um, uh, speaking of space monsters. Yeah. Uh, and things in, uh, the, uh, in, in the stories, I am a big fan of Abhan. Okay. The, 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 the um, Source of uncleanness. <laughs> source of all uncleanness. Yeah. And the fact that uh, he basically clones Abhoth into Abo Sathla. Mm -hmm. I think interest, interest because they're basically the same thing. It's, yeah. a, it's a big bubbly goo that gives birth to things. Abo Sathla is sort of uh, retconning Abhoth into being a cosmic joke in the same way that the cycle is. Because of course it's 
a, a similar bubbling goo that is what all life comes from. And Abhoth originally is like, oh, she's just the source of uncleanness, but Obasathla is the source of all life. Yeah. But I like the sort of, uh, I like Abhoth just as a, as a sense, because we've all, you know, we, we've all left uh, something in the garbage disposal or whatever. I mean, you make beer in your basement, you're practically kissing cousins to Abhoth every other day, <laughs> I imagine. You, you walk in and something just smells, not just wrong, but no one, nothing has ever smelled this wrong before. And that that ability, and, I, and again, that's something that uh, Smith shares with Lovecraft, that ability to convey odor in language. Yeah. is is not common but I, I just i enjoy abhoth and the notion that um uh abhoth is like constantly creating and then regretting its own children i think <laughs> that's just me as a writer <laughs> it's, it's like you're, you're always making stuff and you're like oh that that was mis uh, that was misshapen that was certainly malformed. certainly i should not have allowed that out i'm going to extend a tentacle and try and pull it back into my pool before anyone sees definitely um uh and so I, I think Abhoth is a terrific concept that no one ever does anything with. And again, even when Smith did something with it, he changed it to make it um, a Bosathla. Yeah. But still, Abhoth is cool. No, definitely, definitely a cool one. And uh, the Seven Gias is there's, there's several concepts that don't really get used again. And I feel like there's like some aspects that get reused again in like the mound, but that's, that's about it. But yeah, I mean, and and only very glancingly. Yeah. Um, right. That uh, and of course, Seven Geasts also borrows Robert E. Howard's uh, Serpent People. Sure. Yeah. Right. They, definitely. They get a look in. So it's a tour through the whole uh, Weird Tales universe. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, and part of it is that Lovecraft didn't want to, you know, poach someone else's genuine creation. His borrowing of Sathagma was done uh, out of good fun and with permission, and didn't infringe on Zathagwa, and I think you and I both agree made it even oh, yeah. better. Yeah. But Lovecraft can't go around bigfooting everything mm -hmm. because that's, first of all, Lovecraft's got his own ideas, and second of all, that's uncool. Um, so the, the the I think a lot of the things, we, we look at something as fecund, and, and perhaps uh, pun intended, as seven geases, and you're like, my god, there's so much of this just laying there that even Smith doesn't really come back to. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that was the, the gift and the curse of being Clark Ashton Smith, I guess. Is if you read anything, there's like more good ideas in it, better written than most people do in their lifetime, much less in one short story. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I keep thinking about uh, Aboth, or uh, um, I can't remember how to say it, but, uh, uh, and I, I keep thinking like there was like a, I want to think there was like a Lord Dunsany story where there was like a god that dreamt of itself or like, because uh, uh, I invoked Mana Yusushai. You you invoked Mana Yusushai, who as the god that dreams of itself, but it was like I was thinking like maybe there's something about like Mana Yusushai that's kind of like a both, but it's like a both keeps recreating itself while Mana Yusushai. Yeah. Uh, maintains itself by dreaming itself, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the, once you start getting into sort of phenomenology and ontology of the mythos, you are you are diving very, very deep. Oh yeah. Um, and and that's actually uh, for for lack of a better thing to do, uh, there are modern philosophers who are literally doing that. I mean, I've just been reading Dylan Trigg's uh, book, The Thing, which uh -huh. is uh, an attempt to build 
uh, a phenomenology of the non-human or the unhuman, mm-hmm. um, uh, using the argument that if phenomenology is a, is a universal philosophical discipline, it cannot only apply to human reason. Sure. But where are we going to get unhuman reason to learn about that, to, to examine it? And Dylan Trigg says, why, H.P. Lovecraft, my friend, <laughs> yeah. and uh, horror in general. And then, of course, Graham Harmon has written a bunch of philosophy about Lovecraft. So, yeah, I think I don't know to what extent this is something Clark Ashton Smith was thinking of when he's making uh, the, the uncreated source uh, uh, at Obosathla. But it certainly, you know, that, that's that's why this stuff merits investigation is because a lot of times in science fiction and in fantasy, people are thinking about questions that uh, people haven't thought about because that's kind of the, the job, right? Oh yeah, sure, sure. There's definitely like things that I, uh, like watching Black Mirror or any other science fiction show, science fiction horror show written after 1950, that I'm like, you know, this is kind of like what uh, <laughs> some German philosophers from the Frankfurt School, uh, oh man, um, Walter Benjamin was talking about in the art of reproduction, but this is like if you took it to like the next level. <laughs> right, if you weren't just trying to score points off bourgeois um, uh, uh, Germans who were mean to you in school. Exactly. Right. Um, and uh, speaking of great ideas that uh, never get picked up again, how great an idea is Atlak Naka, the spider? Oh my, that's my fave. Lives in the middle of the world, right? Yeah. Or underneath, in the middle of the mountain, right? Uh, Mount Vermithidreth. Yeah. Which, again, is a great name. Certainly. And I'm, I, I always wonder, was that just Clark Ashland's was saying, well, where do the Vormis live? Where do the Vormis live? What's the Vormis address? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but I, I love the the, the Atlantic Nakab because that's something that genuinely feels like a myth. Yeah. To me, I mean, uh, we we talk about Abhoth and Obosathla as being sort of like philosophical concepts or or uh, or writers' projections. Uh, Sathagwa was just a big fug, huggy bear of a of a goof. But you could believe if you heard that somewhere some tribe of people believed or some culture of people uh, believed in an enormous purple spider that lived in the middle of the world and that everything tugged on its web and when it finished weaving its web, the world would end. Yeah. Or that it was, you would say, yeah, I'd buy that. I would believe that if you came out of somewhere and told me, oh yes, that's that's in Borneo, they believe that. I would say, okay, sure, why not? And, and that's, that, that's such a creation to have come up with something that is both scary and funny in the moment, but is also has that quality of being larger than itself and to do it sort of accidentally on the way to doing something else uh you know if Clark Ashton Smith it, it's weird he sort of he falls into writing short fiction basically because Lovecraft writes him a fan letter yeah and so he reads Lovecraft in weird tales and says oh I can do that <laughs> and he writes it and then Howard and Lovecraft both die within a year of each other and Clark Ashton says well I'm done now that was it that was good yeah and, you know, obviously he had a lot going on in his life and he had a very peculiar relationship later on in his life, but it's just odd to be that good at something and then chuck it away. And, and not like Harper Lee, who at least had royalties, yeah. right? I mean, she writes one great book. Yeah, she's set for life. It's taught in every grade school. But to write a bunch of things that are that good and then to stop, it, it's just very odd. I mean, the, 
there's a lot going on with Clark Ashton Smith that I'm I don't know. Have you read a good biography of him? Is there a good biography? I, I've seen a good uh, movie. Uh, there's that one movie uh, biography right, yeah. about uh, Clark Ashton Smith, Emperor of Dreams, that I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. I learned a lot about him and his surrounding area and his community and a little bit about his folks, but it really didn't go into like, I felt like it really didn't go into who Clark Ashton Smith as a person was, just like he lived here and these are the people he influences. This is his... Uh, post office this is the house that he lived at and then he moved here and he moved in with this woman and her kids and then he lived here with this woman and the <laughs> you know. I'm like, <Right>. okay <laughs> but yeah. yeah i mean it just I, it just seems weird to me that um uh that you've got a a guy like that who um is as important certainly to the field yeah. and as great just to study even regardless of his importance as Robert E. Howard, who I think there's two or three decent biographies of, and Lovecraft who there, again, uh, you know, reach your arm out and pull back a good biography of Lovecraft. Yeah, um, yeah. Not, not from Joshi's magisterial backbreaker all the way down. <laughs> and then the, it, it, the third musketeer is like, oh yeah, I think there's an essay somewhere in a 1984 fanzine and that's yeah. what we all use. It's just weird that 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 and, and again because he also he was legitimately part of the same artistic scene as Jack London. You'd think someone yeah. at least would have, you know, uh, used him as a thesis subject if nothing else. But it's yeah. it's strange that he sort of willed himself back into the obscurity that he emerged out of. Yeah, and something that I think is so weird is like one thing that has really kept like Clark Ashton Smith alive in the minds of people has been role-playing games and, yeah. and like people just doing like well i want to write a story about safagua i want to write a story about furry toad guys and you know just just space monsters and dice tossers are keeping yeah. <laughs> clark Ashton smith alive yeah the the, the the i mean certainly you know um no one is reading george sterling's poetry anymore much yeah. less clark Ashton smith's poetry sure, sure. but it is weird that you, you know, if if Clark Ashton Smith had a bet, he would have thought that would have been what would have survived, not the ridiculous nonsense he did with his buddy Howard for yeah. about a decade. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just very strange that um, uh, that, uh, that 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 happened again, given the richness and, and beauty and fullness of, of the fiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, role playing games brought Lovecraft basically back from uh, back from nothing. I mean, uh, I firmly in the belief that uh, Call of Cthulhu coming out in 1981 is the reason that Lovecraft has not been out of print since 1981. Oh, certainly, certainly, yeah. yeah. That that um, uh, that Ballantine collection, uh, Tales of Terror and the Macabre, or whatever it was, with the sweet Michael Whelan cover, yeah. that came out like two years after, and that actual anthology hasn't been out of print, much less Lovecraft himself, who of course has gone on, you know, Penguin Classics and uh, Library of America and the rest of it. Sure, no. And I think that uh, Smith has been carried along very much by that gamer wave. Howard, obviously, Conan came alive by himself. Yeah. He doesn't need us. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think very much people wanting to find, you know, uh, dice stats for um, uh, uh, Relim Shikorth, the, the ice worm, are, are the people who uh, are keeping uh, Clark Ashton Smith sort of in the conversation to a large extent. Yeah, because I, I remember like even being like, uh, being like, okay, I need to 
use a monster that no one's using that Dennis Detweiler hasn't like you know put his name all over and you know that glancy guy hasn't you know used up yet all right okay okay Ablo Safwa what okay sure oh uh, I gotta read a bunch of Clark Ashton Smith oh man this stuff's like poetry oh this stuff isn't that bad okay I gotta read more of this stuff and then I never finished the mod I was working on. <laughs> you just you just pulled it back into your pit before you released a misshapen thing. Oh, definitely. You were following the, the way of Aboth. Yeah, no, and it's it's I think about it, and it's like Aboth is kind of like this sort of like uh, creator uh, creation myth, kind of like uh, somewhere between like you know this is where all life spawns from, but this is also where all of like life's uh, like somewhere between like a creation myth and a Pandora's box. Well, we've got right. uh, Atlatna yeah. Cha, who's like, you know, when the world ends, you know, the world ends. It's, it's, it's like you have your beginning and your end in the whole same story and a whole bunch of right. in-between. Yep. And then that, that, I think, is, I guess, what I was getting at when I was saying that the Seven Geists is, is, is itself cosmic horror. Yeah. It's just that people don't recognize the cosmicity of it. Certainly. Yeah. Because it's funny. <laughs> and we are conditioned by things like Colorado space to uh, to not have the, the humor reaction going on at the same time as the horror reaction yeah but I mean I, I mean one of the fun things about Smith is that he does you know he, he, he has that whole uh, self uh, present in his fiction oh yeah definitely definitely so Ken what kind of stuff do you have on the in the pipeline right now what uh, what what big projects do you have going on? Well, um, I can tell you, speaking of books of monsters, uh, Hideous Creatures, uh, the bestiary of the Cthulhu mythos that I uh, wrote over this uh, over a period of about three years, and then uh, Gar Hanrahan and Ruth Tillman and a number of other uh, good authors came along and, and finished up. Uh, that out now in physical form, in leg-breaking tome form, or in convenient handy PDF if you'd like uh, from Pelgrane Press and you can go get that. That takes the uh, the Lovecraft monsters uh, primarily and looks at them through a bunch of different angles because of course Lovecraft's goal when he made up Deep Ones was that he thought vampires and werewolves were played out and mm -hmm. now of course if you played Cthulhu games you hear a Deep One and you're like okay I know what this is I'm good <laughs> and you have the same reaction to it that, that Lovecraft was trying to get away from by inventing Deep Ones so sure. I tried to go back and say, here's all kind of other ways you can present deep ones. Here's other things they might be able to do that you haven't done in your game. Nice. Here's the actual historical legends that they might be hiding behind. Here's um, all of the various uh, uh, qualities of uh, the deep ones, some of which are, are contradicting each other. Uh, and they all might be true, or they might be different stories, or they might be true of some and false of another. So that when players meet Deep Ones, at the very least, there's mystery again. And then ideally, what you know, once you don't know anything, that, of course, as Lovecraft teaches us, is the first step into horror. Uh, the, the, the horror, the fear of the unknown. So I'm trying to bring that back for all the monsters that have maybe been a little bit familiar, while also giving some treatment to some monsters that Lovecraft either mentions and doesn't do anything with, but also that Chaosium has not got their big feet all over. So... If you remember in Call of Cthulhu, the cultists all say, oh, we didn't commit any murders. That was bat-winged things mm -hmm. that came out and murdered everybody. We were just standing around. And so uh, if you say, okay, there's bat-winged things 
what are those going to be like? And so I, I take the, the, the bat-winged ones from Lovecraft's tossed-off mention in Call of Cthulhu and, and build those guys out to be monsters. Or the, the thing with the bloody tongue in, uh, the, in the, the, the thing at the Moonlight Dream. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's that about? Um, why has a motorman got a bloody tongue for a head? Is that a thing <laughs> that we should maybe be paying attention to? And so the Ratka Chifa, which is just um, uh, uh, Hindi for bloody tongue, or uh, maybe it's, uh, yeah, it's bloody tongue. So put that in there. And so lots of these sort of um, underexposed monsters, plus uh, the monster from Conan Doyle's Horror at the Heights. Yes. Which is one of my favorite horror stories ever. Hell yeah. And Lovecraft alludes to in At the Mountains of Madness. Oh. Where he talks about there are gaseous wraiths that live in the stratosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then he just goes on. And <laughs> we don't meet the gaseous wraiths, but he, he's giving old Doyle a shout out. And uh, I said, well, if Lovecraft is tipping his hat, that means I have an excuse to put it in there. Sure. So... Uh, the gaseous rates get a get a big treatment. So it's so it's sort of a combination of taking the monsters that you know and are maybe a little uh, bored with, or your players are bored with, and trying to let you put some spins on those, including the serpent people from Howard, um, uh, including the uh, the Wendigo, uh, which have the advantage of having a big body of actual legendary behind them before Blackwood even gets to them. Yeah. So lots of these monsters, uh, running them through a bunch of different visions. Then you know they all got uh, the clues that they leave behind, so you can find them with your uh, gumshoe characters, uh, your trail through the characters, and scenario seeds, so that you can start right that right away from that book. So it's sort of a, it's not a comprehensive bestiary. It's not the the beloved Malleus Monstrorum that we were talking about, but every monster in it is treated so deeply, ideally, and so uh, multidimensionally that you can always be ringing changes on it. That you you. You look at, at uh, the deep ones in this book, and your deep ones, whatever else happens to them, they're not going to be the boring same old deep ones, mm-hmm. right? So that that has just come out, and then I am uh, in the process of finishing up uh, the essays for the second volume of Tour de Lovecraft, uh, Tour de Lovecraft: The Destinations, and I am uh, breaking those as I go through and look at Lovecraft's individual settings and say, what does Lovecraft mean when he talks about Egypt? Right? Yeah. I mean, he means Egypt, but also what does that signify to Lovecraft? Why does he mention it? What's it doing in his work? Uh, what? Why does Lovecraft, uh, what does Lovecraft think Oklahoma is? Yeah. When he's setting uh, the Yig cycle there. Uh, what's what's that about? And so to try and look at setting in Lovecraft, because obviously Lovecraft believes setting is super important. Um, it, it's more important than character, uh, but there haven't really been any sort of comprehensive looks at how does Lovecraft use setting. So I thought, that would be a fun thing to make the next Turtle Lovecraft book about. And yeah. I am, uh, I, as is traditional, I have bitten off perhaps more than I could chew. So I am <laughs> cranking through those uh, as fast as I possibly can. My Kickstarter backers have been uh, very, very patient and good. Uh, very nice. Very understandable. But they would like to see the book, so I would like to finish it. Yeah. So that's what I'm on right now. Very cool. Very, very cool. Special thanks again to Ken Hike for coming on the show again and talking about the Hyperborean cycle. Up next, more show. Thanks again, everyone. Remember to keep it squiggly. And stay weird.